Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Andres, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. Thanks, Owen. Happy to be here. I'd like to just start off with, before we get into factor investing and and everything to do with quantitative investing here in Australia and, it, and how that impacts ESG, which is a really interesting conversation too. I'd like to know a bit more about yourself. How did you come to be um, involved in quantitative investing as a specialty? Right. So I came out of university with a, um, a statistics sort of major in the science faculty, but not really wanting to be a career stats guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a, a postgrad in econometrics in the ECHO faculty, just to give me a hopefully a dose of applied um, stats Um, that was a nice move to be able to get me a job Um, this is back in 92 kind of tricky recessionary times and very happy to have uh, managed to secure a job with the bank of melbourne and that was um on the fixed income side as a treasury dealer you know so you that was a fun place to be fun also because a small team and you got to see lots of different parts of a treasury operation whether it's swaps desks, bonds desk, or, or um, what I ended up doing quite a bit of was managing the Bank of Melbourne's cash book. All right. And so one of my main jobs was to keep a track of uh, the, you know, the, the, the cash position and, and the paper that you sold as, as, a, as a treasury dealer. And, um, and we used to do that on a big A2 piece of paper that you'd sort of pencil in all the... Oh, wow. Right? And it was kind of... Why are we doing this on paper? Come yeah. on, guys, let's build a spreadsheet. And so we um, we built this spreadsheet and people were going, oh, man, that's pretty cool. You should be a quant. And I'm going, what do you mean? What's a quant? <laughs> so I was kind of fell into it a little bit and encouraged by others in my in my team at that time to learn more about quant. And um, one mate passed me a, uh, an advertisement for a job. Hey, here's a quant equity guy. You know, it's in equities, but hey, you know, it's a quant. Mm. And so I went along for a conversation and um, that was really fun and landed that job as a quant investor with County NatWest it was back then, um, which is funny because I'm working today with Invesco and that was the prior oh, right. okay. predecessor company. That. So I was around for about five years as a quant with County Investments, which that in that day in the mid-90s, quant was largely about risk yeah. and uh, controlling portfolio construction. Not many quant funds going around, but you were starting to read about it. Um, some of the pioneers were getting going and uh, I kind of wanted to have a go at that. And I joined a mate, um, Ken Liao. Ken Liao is an old mentor and colleague. Uh, we, we started a, um, an outfit uh, as part of Merrill Lynch Investors and had the opportunity to build a quant fund then. So this is now early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, doing some pretty fun things, um, things like after-tax portfolios, which were pretty new at the time, long-short investing in quant. Mm-hmm. That was all pretty new. And um, and the, I guess as history goes, Merrill's were bought out by BlackRock and then BlackRock um, became a really big thing when they purchased BGI mm. and BGI had a long pedigree, Barclays Global Investors had a long pedigree in quant investing and so I, was just, I, I learned a lot through maybe nearly 20 years with that organisation through different investors and their experiences in, in quant investing. We were just speaking off air about quant investing and as it applies to retail investors or even individual yeah. investors that are wealthy, it's often not 
as frequently comment upon the the idea that you would be you know a fundamental investor you'd be focused on price to book and or doing discounted cash flow analysis or you st- speak to management that seems to be very topical at times mm. um, whereas the the quantitative side and factor side is maybe it's maybe it's just a little bit ter- in terms of the learning curve it's a little bit further up or it's a little bit more abstract but I'm hoping we can dispel some of those concerns for investors today can you just explain to myself and to listeners what is factor investing so factor investing the word factor is best thought of as a characteristic right that you can measure Mm-hmm. Um, and in the context of investing, that means, you, and you said it before, things like book to price, yep. price to cash flow, um, growth. These are ideas that are characteristics, right? You can measure them. Mm. Um, so a factor investor has a philosophy that is to invest in line with characteristics that have proven to have, to have success as return predictors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you can say that a factor can have a factor premium mm-hmm. and as a quantitative investor, you can harness or harvest that factor premium mm-hmm. if you can build a nice risk-controlled portfolio. And in part, and I mean, the risk, risk control is a big topic in itself, but the core of it is to ensure that you've got good exposure to those factors that you know have a re- are rewarded and have a return premium. Mm-hmm. and reduce all the exposures to factors that are unrewarded, right? And so they're just genuine risk factors, if you like. Right. So in a sense, that's, that's what factor investing is, building risk control portfolios to harvest a return premium associated with characteristics of stocks. Mm-hmm. You, you did, I'm going to bring it up, you did give me the um, analogy of a sports team and building a sports team. Uh, yeah. Yeah, out of characteristics like this. Right, right. Okay. So characteristics in sport. I mean, it is a pretty cool analogy to think of. Let's you know, let's think of football. Right. Um, you can think of a characteristic of a football team. There are characteristics like you know, defensive, defensiveness. Yep. There, um, there are there's you know, move the ball forward is another char- ability to move the ball forward quickly and score. Yep. Another characteristic would be size of your players. Mm-hmm. Now. Some of those, like defensiveness, mm-hmm. would be forever and a day thought of as being a, a positive characteristic that would lean towards being more successful. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a characteristic like size would be more of a risk factor in the way I was talking about it a moment ago. It'd be something that is a measurable characteristic, but something that you probably wouldn't want to be one way or the other on. You'd want to have a balance or almost neutral exposure to, to, to size. Or, because you'd want some taller people and some smaller players right? as well. Right, you know, and if you were too tall, you might lose out in the agility stakes. If you were too small, you might lose out in the aerial sort of contests, mm. right? Um, and so you kind of want to have a bit of a, a neutral exposure to, to something like size or height in mm-hmm. footy. But um, you'd probably want to have a positive exposure to, to characteristics that look like defensive ability yep. or, or uh, ball movement. Uh, efficiency or scoring, mm. you know, ability to, k- to kick high scores. Mm-hmm. They are clear characteristics that would have an association with, with positive outcomes in the future. Mm. And I guess the analogy continues to sort of, you know, with factor investing where if you have a growth of data and, and technical, um, you know, analysis of, the, of, the, of sport, you can refine your approach to mm. characteristics that are, 
newer and better ways of getting at things like defensiveness and scoring ability. So what once back in the 90s, in the simple, simple days, you would have thought defensiveness would have been all about tackling, and that certainly would have done a good job. Mm. Laying a tackle was going to be a good trait as a team. These days we're talking about pressure acts, right? Mm. Off the ball pressure and zoning and things like that, right? Uh, uh, more refined measures of defensiveness. And similarly, you know, back in the day, offensive tactics or a characteristic would have been, you know, kicking it long, mm -hmm. getting the ball forward. Clearly today we think about inside 50s and, you know, moving and, and forward contests, mm. forward handballs. These are, these are positive characteristics that have been shown more recently to be better versions of offensive ball movement. And so, yeah, there's, there are analogies that you can sort of draw between the sport, footy in our Aussie way, um, and factor investing. It's about finding characteristics that you know are predictive of positive outcomes in the, f in the future, like defensiveness or or, ball, or, or, or uh, scoring ability and ensuring you've got a team or a portfolio that mm. is positively loaded with those positive traits, with those characteristics that you like. Mm. And at the same time, avoiding having risky exposures to characteristics that don't really give you a reward. Just one more is kind of sitting the frame, the groundwork here is how do you identify factors? Like what's the process? The best way is to have a lot of data um, and history of data. Um, and so the way of identifying or using the data is to say, okay, what would the world have looked like back 25 years ago? Mm -hmm. um, and if I could measure the stock universe back then, what would a portfolio have looked like and how would it have gone, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so essentially in a, a backtest world, that's what we're quants would would call you know the testing environment of a factor mm -hmm. it's basically like replaying the wheel um, and you know building a portfolio based on the characteristics that you were researching and then tracking how it performed then rebalancing the portfolio to capture new information so it might be a new set of stocks that are better ways of getting exposure to that characteristic that you're after mm -hmm. and if and then, you know, trading the portfolio to, to buy those new stocks and selling the stocks that have fallen out, out, less out of favour. And then tracking the subsequent portfolio that you've rebalanced. So it's about a – and that would be a way that we would be able to get evidence for whether the char characteristic that you're researching has any kind of success and is it, any, is it investable. Mm -hmm. we, we see in, um, I guess – some various guises like ETFs and, mm -hmm. and listed products, we see things like value ETFs and we see momentum. But um, how does it all come together? Because it sounds like like it's what you're saying is get, to get the balance, you have to be kind of multi-factor. Um, would, would that be a fair to say? Yes, I would say that. Um, so there's a couple of ways to get access to multiple factors. And I mean, you talk about ETFs where, sure, you can build a value ETF which would be a, a ranking of stocks based on of your favourite value measures mm -hmm. um, and you're buying stocks that are attractive on those measures and avoiding buying stocks that are unattractive, right, on that value score. And then in an ETF context, they probably hold that portfolio for maybe six months and then run the numbers again in another in six months' time yeah, that's and it, rebalance yeah. it, right? Um, and that's a good way to get access to the value idea. Um, and then, of course, if you wanted to balance your factors, you could buy a value ETF alongside a quality 
ETF as well. However, what we find is that often value ETFs and quality ETFs and even momentum ETFs, they're they're, they're not perfectly mutually exclusive. So there's often a bit of overlap between them. And so, you know, if you're buying a value ETF that has a stock in it and then a a quality ETF wants to sell that same stock, there's a a trade-off. And so often a better way to get access to multiple factor exposures is to build it from the stock level up and find stocks that are uh, have, have an average exposure to all of the value, quality and momentum ideas that you like in itself and then buy that stock, Yeah. right? And so you're find, trying to find, you know, the, the, the stocks that have the most positive characteristics, characteristic, characteristics themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, yeah, they're, they're a um, – and then that way you're combining all of the factors at the stock level. Mm. There's something that we spoke about off-air which I didn't really grasp well enough coming into this, but one of the things is you mentioned before like taxes, managing – effectively building portfolios for tax positions as well, mm. which is something we don't talk about in managed funds a lot and it's not reported on. I don't know if it's complexity or whatever, mm-hmm. but one of the things that I think of when I think of uh, quant funds is – Basically, how do how do the fee loads compare to say active management or passive management, and how does the tax kind of work through all of that? Okay, so a couple of questions I'll try to answer in both okay. there: um, fees as well as taxes, right? So the fee load on a factor manager, you know, have been typically more uh, affordable than the more traditional active managers, and I would like to say that that is because you know we're leveraging data and technology. Mm-hmm. It's not as uh, labour-intensive a process. And so a fund manager outfit um, can run a quantitative process with lower overheads, mm. um, leveraging data and technology, and, and be able to put together a process that should be able to be a little bit cheaper than a more heavily labour-intensive fund, right? For sure. Yeah. So, that, so, yeah, you do see um, more, cost of, more cost effectiveness with some of the factor investors out there, right? Um, on the tax side, taxes are super important, as we know. And in my mind, where quant can be a challenge for taxes is due to the turnover. Mm. And so as data comes through the door and, and, and your list of favourite characteristics changes, or the stocks that are going to give you those favourable characteristics, that stock list changes, then you need to trade. Mm. And you then run the risk of either, uh, you know, burning a, opportunity to to get a capital gains discount mm. or in australia with frank, franking credits you yep. might trade out of a a, 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 a a sure gain that is a franking credit yep. by buying a stock one month and selling it the ne- next month so that's a risk in quant and so to have a high turnover quant fund is probably not going to help you out on the after-tax perspective as uh, as you would hope mm. and so one way to mitigate that is to really uh, lengthen your investment horizon and the focus that you on the fa- on the, and use the factors that benefit a longer investment horizon, so lower turnover factors, mm-hmm. right? And that and it's certainly doable. And to be able to really get that more persistent sort of position taking um, in your portfolio, and you mitigate the risk that you should never burn a franking credit. And so you can be able you should be able to build a factor portfolio that certainly is tax aware. And and doing the right thing for the end investor. Mm. There's this. I'm I'm glad that you said that kind of 
idiosyncrasies of Australia yes. um, with franking credits. But our market is also top heavy and concentrated into things like banks and resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was really interested coming into this is, is to know how do certain factors perform in Australia relative to overseas? Right. And, at, you know, what you said is actually the, the nib of the issue. It's the uniqueness of the Aussie market. That means that, um, you know, there are certain things that you got to look out for and, and you wonder how they play out here versus in the rest of the world. Mm. But prima facie, you know, if it's the characteristic of a stock, it really should have some global relevance, yeah. right? So if your, fundam- your, your, your first premise is that a, um, you know, your, your ideas should have global relevance, mm-hmm. so that's typically where you start and that's certainly where, how we go about it. Um, you get confidence from your, your, your characteristic or your factor having uh, being reinforced in different markets uh, and so if, if it's a good investment idea here, it should have some good legs somewhere else, right? But that's when your very good point about the uniqueness of Australia needs to be also considered. So what we find is there's a similar flavour of characteristics that apply here as you do see in the rest of the world, just that the emphasis and the importance of, of, of certain factors is different mm. in Australia. So the classic, uh, the classic example that we often lean on is, is value. Right in Australia, um, value doesn't have as meaningful impact in and of itself as right. a as a driver of returns, versus another market like traditionally uh, Japan has been more value oriented. So you do get your price to books and those kind of mm-hmm. old favourite sort of value characteristics work reasonably well in Japan, <clears throat> but you don't see that here in Australia. But it's not to say that value isn't important. So we would often think that, again, in that idea of balancing factor exposures um, across different factors, um, we would say value has a really helpful role to play, even if it isn't driving returns itself. It certainly has a role to play in, in helping mitigate you getting into the excesses of a momentum strategy, for example, right? Mm. Or falling into value traps, things that are particularly cheap but cheap for a reason. So you might have quality in there to help you avoid getting into value traps. So this is why um, a balance of factors is important. And in Australia, even though things like value and quality may not be the key driver, it it honestly is a very momentum-orientated market, what we have here. Mm -hmm. They still have a very important role to play in balancing the exposure that you get to momentum. Yeah, because I was reading through some of the white papers, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, The momentum in earnings seems to be a very powerful, um, like, I guess, factor that you're looking for. Right, absolutely. It's uh, almost earnings as a, you know, persistent earnings is the key thing in Australia. You know, it's daylight second. Um, And, you know, that's not a new idea for investors. Your listeners no. would know that, you know, when you're looking at your stocks, what are the earnings going to be? How, what's the reliability of those earnings? Mm. Um, and what price do I have to pay to get these earnings, right? Yeah. So um, these are characteristics that most investors look at. And I guess, you know, harking back to the comparison to fundamental investors, it starts to sound a little bit like, um, you know, these are not, earth-shattering ideas because everyone's looking for companies that have got good earnings yeah. and good earnings growth. And everyone's looking for companies that are 
well priced and have an opportunity to get a return because you're not overpaying for those earnings. And you're looking for good management as well and how do we characterise good management? That's a more quality idea. So most investors are looking for these characteristics as we've been talking about them as factors. The difference with factor investing is that you've got a more systematic approach to go about doing that and the way you build a portfolio is far more risk-controlled as a factor investor. But nonetheless, it's based in that similar grounding of finding characteristics that you know are exemplary of good companies or mm. good stocks. I was reading in the white paper how the team basically outlined a few reasons why momentum may work so well in Australia. And one of them was that we have a high proportion of retail investors. And another one was that the distance between reporting in Australia yeah. is, you know, it, it's further apart. Whereas in the States, for example, you have quarterly reports. Mm. Um, you still have some quarterly reports here in Australia, but not nearly as many as you do in, over, over there, right? That's right. It's the thing. Right? We, we find momentum is, okay, what is momentum? It's like uh, often it's a reaction to news, right? And, you know, with, with, uh, with news that is positive, you might imagine there's some buying pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you were to, to have more frequent reporting seasons, you might have more volatility. But sometimes in Australia what we find is that with not as much frequency, if you like, not mm-hmm. as high a frequency, um, these momentum ideas have a bit more time to establish themselves and, the, and, and they aren't chopping as much around as, as otherwise. And so often we will look at things like reporting announcements and finding companies that moved positively um, to that reporting uh, announcement. And then we'll look at the next reporting announcement as well. And, and you'll start to build a bit of a trend and linking together the companies that seem to somehow magically continually surprise in their announcements. So, no, you know, for 20 years we've seen CSL do this. Yep. They managed to just give you enough to have a positive reaction after their reporting. And this is what builds momentum. Mm, yeah. How, does, how do you know when Factor stops working? Are you constantly running regressions or yep. uh, how, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, look, that's one way. Certainly, you know, you, you run regressions, you decompose the, the sources of return. And when you, would see, when you would see one of your characteristics like value, for example, as being um, starting to wane, in terms of its ability to drive returns, then you might start to ask a question, right? So yeah, it is through research that you'd go back and you'd, um, you know, look to see if the factor has continued to have predictive power in the more recent periods than it may have done in, in the longer earlier periods, right? So yeah, that'd be the type of research that you would do. But also, you would want to complement that with um, a rationale now, could you think of a reason why this factor that really does have a lot of, you know, uh, economic rationale has suddenly ceased to, to work? Mm. Um, and, and, and if you can put your finger on that, you would really start to question whether this, fact, this factor or the signal for the factor should be continued as an uh, ongoing basis and you'd, and you'd kick, kick it out, mm. right? So I, I've slipped in another term there along the way. I just wanted to point out signals, mm. right? And so I said signals because a factor is this, I'd like to think of that as is more a family of, of, of ideas. So we've talked about value, mm. right, or, or momentum, quality. They're the, they're the big factors. Um, 
But then how do you get access to these factors? You know, there are measures, if you like, that best characterised a factor. And you mentioned price to book and price to cash flow. Well, they're the, they're the signals of, as in, my, in my vernacular, yep. you know, um, that give you the characteristics of a value factor. And similarly, um, momentum, there's signals in momentum that characterise what, what the momentum family is all about. And that would be things like earnings growth or earnings momentum, um, or even some of the more sentiment measures, more price-based momentum. They're, they're the signals. And when you're looking to see whether these signals have stopped working, you can sort of do that research experiment as we were talking about, you know, does it continue to have that same predictive power as it would have once purported? And is there a reason why a signal might not keep working? If so, to kick it out, right? Mm. Our process, however, we were very much more about a more persistent factor investor, right? And so these are ones that have strong rationales for existing in markets because of either a risk reason or a behavioural reason or a structural reason for that idea existing. And it's going to be pretty hard to knock an idea like that off the shelf mm. and, and remove it. And, and you might have shorter-term periods where they might wane in their effic efficacy, but it might be for a more economic, e economic regime that it might be out of favour. But we saw value now for a number of years has, been, has struggled. Mm. And many would have questioned value as a going concern, right? Um, some have jumped off the value bandwagon and, and jumped off. Unfortunately, you know, value for those players anyway has roared back with some efficiency recently. So it kind of speaks to that persistence of an idea. So it did have a, a, a period of less efficacy, less effectiveness. But clearly it's starting to now have more importance. Um, certainly even in Australia when it's not a huge driver, it's certainly important to be considering value at the moment, right? Um, so we wouldn't be jumping off value just because it had a, a short period of underperformance because it continues to have a rationale as to, a, and a reason to exist. There's something that I, I heard you say before, which is basically this phrase, unrewarded risk. Oh, yeah. So... How, did, how do you go about quantifying what is unrewarded risk in right. a portfolio? So what is, what is a factor? Again, it's a characteristic that, um, that describes stocks. And I would say a risk factor is one that is a characteristic that drives a co-movement of similar stocks, right? So, they, so a group of stocks can move together. Mm -hmm. Now, a subset of those factors will have a positive return, but many of them are just groups of stocks that don't have a long-term return bias. And so they, in the long term, they, they as a group average out to no value add. I'd call that a risk factor, mm. right? So things like betting on industries in our mind is a risk factor. You know, you couldn't say that persistence in being biased to, say, gold stocks or consumer stocks over a long period of time was going to be a reliable way to win, right? So you'd probably reduce your exposure to an industry bias like that and keep it relatively neutral. And so you'd consider it a risk factor. Others would be um, some of the style measures, like size. That's a more contentious one. In some markets, size does seem to have a positive drift. You know, betting on small cap stocks has some... Uh, return 
um, associated with it. Is it like here in Australia? No, it's not um, as much seen here. And so we would consider cyan as more as a, as a risk factor right. and not necessarily routinely invest in a size bias. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And we're, 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 I'm fascinated by this. Which markets, if you have them off the top of your head, would be associated with that size bias? Well, in the past, you, you know, the most research has been done in the US and it's probably where the size bias um, originated. So back, harking back to the academic research um, in the 90s, Eugene Farmer and um, mm. Farmer and French was yep. a seminal paper that talked about value. And they also talked about size as being one of the key characteristics of return drivers. And they built a portfolio, a simple three-factor portfolio, betting on these ideas. Um, it isn't. It, it sort of had, had its in its infancy, it was considered here in Australia, but very quickly became more of a risk factor. People and researchers in Australian equities didn't really see the persistent reward to size in the same sort of way. But in the US market, yeah, it, did ha- it does have legs and is still invested in today. Hmm. Another thing that's really interesting, I saw a paper on this on your site, um, which is how did factor investing fare through um, the COVID crash, if we can right. call it that? Maybe if you even remember back to the GFC, any likenesses or differences there, then that's fascinating too. Yeah, so so these crashes, if you like, or, or um, disruptive market events are likely to cause a changing in the guard in terms of the, the characteristics that are working versus those that may stop right. working, right? Okay. Um, because there's a lot of volatility going on, there might be macro factors that get thrown into the mix. There might be government and policy interventions that are, that are brought upon us that change the landscape. And so a different cohort of stocks might take the, take the reins. Um, so what we saw during, say, March, um, if you remember two years ago, um, you know, it was quite a quality-driven market, mm. lots of good quality was driving and momentum was still very strong value was certainly on the outer what happened as the the pandemic rolled in certainly you know you're well positioned to benefit from quality as riskiness was was around mm-hmm. um, and quality stocks are thought to be a good risk mitigant if you like so that was great but then when the policy response came all the problems were solved apparently and in a heartbeat, we saw risk get, could get put back on. And so quality as an idea went out of favour and value became a, a, a more favourable place to be for that risk-on environment. And because of that changing of the stock guard, if you like, momentum also, and certainly price momentum, struggled as, you know, what is price momentum? Yesterday's winners. So yesterday's winners were now out of favour because a new set of winners were coming into favour. Mm. And so price momentum struggled for a short period of time. Interestingly, earnings momentum didn't miss a beat throughout, throughout that changing of the guard. We, what we found was even though people might have been excused for thinking, well, what does anyone know about which companies are going to have good, good earnings going forward when we don't really know whether there's a pandemic or the response to the pandemic? Well, what, it, what we found is that you know, the way you look at building an earnings momentum idea might is typically finding the companies that are better able to generate earnings momentum versus their peers. Mm. And what we found is that 
regardless of the environment you were in, as we were a year or so, two years ago, those companies can continue to generate the better earnings results. Just their relative earnings momentum was powerful. Um, and so that continued on unabated. So we saw a few things continued nicely. Certainly value and quality sort of shifted around a bit and moment, price momentum certainly shifted. So there was volatility. So um, what I took away though was that if you had a balanced approach across factors, you certainly had your earnings momentum on, you had some value and you had some quality, you were reasonably well hedged that, you know, when quality stopped working, value picked up, right? And, and so it was an endorsement for a multi-factor approach to tackling these volatile periods. Um, and certainly, you know, the experience on the whole was that, you know, you seem to sail through a very volatile environment, but nonetheless continue to eke out reasonable positive returns um, relative to the benchmark. So it was a yeah endorsement in, in that risk management part of the process, and even though, you know, in the short term you might have had some factor rotation. This is a quite a, a transition, but something that's come to the fore in recent years is the shift towards ESG portfolios. Yeah, and um, you know we've seen whether it's through passive vehicles, whether it's through active management, yep. almost everyone is even direct investors are, are now feel, seeing this. Is everyone's considering the ES and the G? How does that work? I was going to say factor into a, a quantitative portfolio, but how does how do you manage that exposure? Right. And I'm, I guess I'm particularly intrigued by if there's more to it than just negative screening, i.e., removing things based on industry exposure or something like that. Is there more sophisticated nuance in the in the quantitative set? Yeah. Look, the short answer is a quant approach works very nicely with being aware of uh, you know, secondary objectives like ESG. Yep. And I say that in the absolute positive sense because it is a, an objective that everyone should bear. You know, We all know about the objective of generating returns and doing the right as a fiduciary, but we can ha happily factor in secondary objectives as our clients want to see. Yep. We want to see good positive ESG outcomes, right? And so quant works particularly well in considering these things because, um, <laughs> well, if I can talk about it in by way of contrast, in a fundamental investor's portfolio, you, you fall in love with stocks, you know, mm -hmm. in a way. And um, it's something that a quant doesn't do. You know, we yeah, have a, of course. We, we buy the factors and whatever stocks deliver the factor exposure, kind of doesn't matter to us, to be honest. Yeah, it sounds a little bit, um, you know, naive, or not naive, but that's the way it is, right? You're ultimately, you're not, you're, you're, buying, um, a, you're buying stocks to best get the characteristic you want, right? And so what we can do in, in, in quant is look at a better universe of stocks. You can quite happily say, oh, this particular stock's got really some poor ESG qualities. I don't need to buy that name. Yep. I'll find my positive factor exposure in another set of its peer group and quite happily buy a uh, – and that's what, they, what often is referred to as a best-in-class approach to, to, to ESG investing. It's about you know, buying the best ESG portfolio you can by avoiding you know, the, the, the worst offenders, certainly at the very least. And Quant does that particularly well. And in that way, you kind of think of Quant as being a, a good partner for a, uh, uh, an objective like ESG mm. outcomes. So 
often you get asked questions about ESG though. Is it you know is it a return driver? You know, is it a factor in itself? Mm. And they're sort of two different questions in itself. You know, if, is it a factor? Well, I say absolutely it is because a moment ago we were talking about does it describe the co-movement of stocks? Yep. Well, I say tick, yes, it certainly does. These days we know we can see groups of stocks moving in, 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 in step because of their ESG exposure. Right. Right. So in that way it is certainly a factor. Is it a return factor? Well, for that, I would say you'd often, as a quant, rely on a longer history of data, yep. probably a longer history than we have at this point, reliably from ESG. But I would definitely say it's certainly an emerging factor and that one that you can imagine has a reason to exist. You know, we can all understand the reasons why people are looking at ESG for the societal outcomes that it offers. And so to me, it's, uh, it's a, enough of a rationale to think of these characteristics as having a reason to exist and you're certainly seeing evidence that they uh that an esg factor can have some positive return impact mm. but as we stand today uh, i would prefer, would prefer to incorporate esg as a risk factor as well as you know leaning towards better esg within a risk controlled environment and buying that factor exposure, as we described before, that best-in-class approach. Mm. Yeah, because I, you often hear the criticism that ESG is a quality a play on quality because, yeah. because the early movers in the industry, of course, are going to be the ones that have higher quality. You know, they are the businesses that can fulfill ESG requirements pretty well okay. and, and they can get ahead of the curve. And so, yeah, that's interesting that you say it's maybe a little bit too early to really get a handle on that. It makes sense too because so many companies are only now reporting in this way, right. missions, if we just think of the E and ESG. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long do, do you typically, would you like to see before these types of factors are truly considered in their own right? Well, you want to see a business cycle at the least, right? right. Um, and so you can have a, a sense of, you know, different regimes if you like. And so what is a business cycle? <laughs> We've had some pretty elongated cycles recently. Here we go. Yeah, um, traditionally they've said seven years. I would say a dozen years would yep. be a good period of time to start to build some efficacy. Um, not to say that if you don't have a dozen years, it doesn't have any chance of getting the endorsement these days because mm. clearly there's that sensibility side of the thought process as well. Sure. But, um, but yeah, that's probably an indication. If you have a good decade of data, you've got something to work with. Yep. But with many of the quant factors around today have got multiple decades of information and that's what you're up against um you know depending on your investment philosophy you know are you though are you of that type to really need multiple decades of information before Mm. you see the writing on the wall on these things i'd hope not there's one more question here that i really want to ask you which is just around how do how can and how should investors use quantitative strategies in a portfolio and you've spoken i guess about the balance Mm. but um you know we typically we use a cookie cutter approach we go aussie equities global us equities maybe some em bonds maybe some alternatives if you're getting a bit spicy how does how do you think the esg um, not the esg the quantitative aspect fits into that portfolio. Um, and uh, the reason why this is really interesting for me is because we spoke off air about people basically now designing portfolios based purely on factors. Right. Um, and that's becoming more and more prevalent in the advisor and institutional space, but it still hasn't hit self-directed investors. So this is kind of 
how do how do you introduce people to that and that way of thinking yeah i'd say you know the way you started to talk about is certainly the traditional way thinking of those big groups of asset classes you know aussie equities international equities em right that's all that's where we start right so i would like to think that people even at the first instance start to think of factor investing as a um another lens right to look at the groups of assets that they're or the exposures that they're that they've got and so have i got enough em have i got enough dm have i got enough aussie right equities and then within that what is my style or factor type exposure am i all in value if i am maybe i should balance that out um value versus growth versus momentum ideas right now these are um and and these are very tangibly becoming a uh, uh, market practice in the professional investor realm. Yeah. And certainly you see the researchers out there putting that lens on manager portfolios. For sure. You can do. see, yeah. you know, Zenith Research, I, I know, is one example where they'll they'll have a, a, a factor lens on your portfolio um, horizon. And when they recommend to their advisors, they'll certainly advise a, a mix of styles yeah. within each of those big blocks uh, yeah. we talked about. So that's the first way. The other way, and I think is where that self-directed investor could get to as well, um, is to think of uh, using a specialist factor investor as a core positioning in their portfolio because it gives them certainly that return enhancement that you get in a very risk-controlled way. So you get risk-controlled excess returns, but also you're getting often... um, those returns at a more cost-effective level. We touched on costs a moment ago, right? What that does is gets you exposure to a a very risk-efficient portfolio at at the right price whilst freeing up your fee budget to bolt Mm. more more, uh, expert specialists in the areas that you have interest in as satellites. That, that classic core satellite approach can be implemented nicely with factor investing. Mm. And so if you know a great small cast manager or a, a fabulous EM specialist, um, you can now have more fee budget freed up to invest in a manager of that specialty around a core that might include a factor investing specialist as well. Mm. Yeah, it, it definitely makes sense from where I sit. Um, so. There, there, there are numerous papers that you or the team have um, contributed to on the website. Yeah. Where can our listeners go to find those papers? Is it like the website the best place to, to go? Oh, look, that's right. It's probably um, – we've got a little quant hub yeah. <laughs> on, the, on the website and there's a few um, other more relevant papers are there. I mean, um, so investco.com.au. Yep. Um, and find your way to the insights area where there's a, a quantitative hub and um, and then you know Google your way around and and, and read the read the academic research that mm. gets summarised you know very very widely these days and so many uh, interesting journals are writing about it. Um, you mentioned the part the, the bit about you know self directed investors and mm. the trends that that has been we're seeing overseas. Um, in the in the states, there's been big platforms of separately managed accounts starting to look at that. To me, that 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 means um, research is being done as to why how inv- individuals can use factor investing, and there's mm. quite a few interesting little papers to read up about that. And and it's certainly a, a uh, you know from 
from a long-term investing point of view, as an investor, I would advocate always be, have mm-hmm. a long-term perspective. It's a great way to have a risk-controlled approach to a long-term investment strategy. Yeah, so I'll put all the links in the show notes to the, to the white papers that you prepared for the, for the interview as well, which is fantastic. Um, one final question from me then is just any advice that you would give to a younger Andre? What would you say? Oh, the younger Andre? Oh, it's just a long time ago now. Um, <laughs> we would um, like to have a chat to that young fella and say, mate, um, slow down a bit. Yeah. Slow down and, and talk to more people. Yeah. Um, and talk to them and listen to what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'd like to say to that young guy, you know, read a, read a bunch of books, but that's not realistic. I didn't read, I was a stats guy, right? I didn't like reading that much. Yeah. And I'm trying to fix that up more recently, but um, talking was fun. Meeting people was always been fun. So you can, the thing I would, I would tell that young guy is to just meet people, enjoy our society, mm-hmm. uh, our community investing, and, and, uh, and listen and learn from the people who know what's going on. I think that's great advice. Andre, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Owen. It's been good to have a chat.